The wonderful words of that hymn also remind us of the great and wonderful masterpiece of Hebrew poetry that we're going to be looking at this morning, and that is Psalm 19. Some say it might be one of the most majestic pieces of Hebrew poetry ever written. There are stark contrasts between the first two sections of this psalm, and yet in this contrast they are intricately woven together as two chords of a symphony to the revelation of God. It is completed by the odd, convicted, believing words of a human being, a part of God's creation, in reaction to these two chords of the symphony of that relation, of that revelation of God. Let's read this wonderful psalm and be reminded of God's glory and God's grace. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us pray. O Lord, indeed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are my rock and my redeemer. Lord, help us all to respond to your words this morning in faith, with the life that you give through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The heavens are telling the glory of God. You know these words. Very famous oratorio by Joseph Haydn. And it's right here in Psalm 19. But Joseph Haydn was not writing about Psalm 19 alone. He was writing about creation. In fact, this is from the words regarding the fourth day of creation. 
He wrote, the heavens are telling the glory of God, the wonder of his work displays the firmament. Today that is coming speaks it the day, the night that is gone to following night. And then the chorus, the heavens are telling the glory of God, the wonder of his work displays the firmament. In all the lands resounds the word, never unperceived, ever understood. The heavens are telling the glory of God, the wonder of his work displays the firmament. Doesn't it sound like what we just read in Psalm 19? You know, Joseph Haydn had an amazing career. His parents couldn't read music, but they played and sang together in the home and soon learned that their young son Joseph had musical talent. So at age six, they sent him off with a family relative, never to return home and live with them again so that he could be trained in music. He began as a boy singer, was recruited just within two years to the city of Vienna where he joined the boys' choir, and yet at age 18 he was thrown out onto the streets because he no longer had the voice that the boys' choir wanted. Influenced by Bach, learning by the works of the son of Johann Sebastian Bach, later a friend of Mozart and acquaintance to Beethoven, Haydn's work is still today magnificent, even almost 225 years after he wrote the oratorio called The Creation. Yet how appropriate that although this early oratorio composer, the early one, Heinrich Schultz, who confined his work to the gospel, Yet Haydn confined his work in this oratorio to the subject of creation. You see, creation is a wonderful illustration of God's power and glory. But the gospel gives so much more. Why is this appropriate that Haydn wrote the creation? It's because we really don't know where he was spiritually. Haydn was considered a respectable or honest enlightenment man. In fact, the people around him would say, this is a good man and a good example of the enlightenment. But it's unclear whether or not this man actually was enlightened by God's special revelation, the gospel. You see, this particular psalm that Haydn wrote about and he contained within his oratorio of the creation gives us three great declarations. The first is that there is a God of glory. This is the revelation we call natural revelation. The second great declaration is that this is the Lord of life. This is declared in special revelation in God's word. And the final declaration is by the psalmist himself, the author King David, who says, here is my redeemer, in responding to that special revelation. But first of all, the heavens are telling. This responds, or this is a, a, a response to the glory of God expressed in his natural revelation. We sometimes call it general revelation. Here it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. What are the heavens telling? If you go out at night or you go out even during the day and you go out to look at the firmament, the heavens, and look up for a change, what are you seeing? 
Yes, you're seeing a lot of stuff. In the daytime, you're seeing the blue sky and the clouds and the sun. Sometimes you can see the moon at night or in a very certain circumstance, you might see some planets that seem close by but are far, far away. If you go out in the night, particularly away from the city lights, you see all the stars twinkling out in the blackness and the vastness of space. But what do these heavens tell us? They tell us the glory of God. They tell us the vast and immense creation that he has put in place. And they tell us the work of his hands. Now, God didn't by hands create these things. This is an anthropomorphism, we say, one of those things where we, we make God like a man here in describing this. We know that God spoke these things into existence. And yet here the psalmist reminds us that the heavens are telling the handiwork of the hands of God. Very poetic way to describe creation. In the midst of this, not only the glory of God, of course this word glory in Hebrew is the word heavy or weighted. In the essence here, when we talk about glory, that means basically the the heavy importance of who God is. It also describes the constancy of things. Notice this, day to day, night to night. What does it reveal? Knowledge. God's knowledge. God's knowledge to be able to put this wonderful universe together with all the laws of gravity and with all the ability to shine light on a planet and to make things in just the right way so that there is life and that life is provided for even through the instruments of God's creation. It says there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. There's a universality here. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. On the one hand it says they don't have speech. On the other hand it says the words go out. In other words there's a universality here in this unspoken language. It doesn't matter where you are on the face of the planet you still see God's glory in creation. There are still stars. There's still the sunshine. There's still the moon. The glory of God is evident in creation. And then, of course, the centerpiece. We understand without the sun, we would not have physical life. So he begins to describe the sun Perhaps it's in response to the pagans around them who worship the sun, and he's reminding them that the sun displays not its own power or ability to give life, but the sun displays the creator who created the sun in order to give that life. And so he describes the sun this way. The sun rejoices. That's what it says here. It says, like a strong man runs its course with joy in verse 5. But he describes the sun in these ways. First of all, it's like a bridegroom. On the one hand, at night, the sun goes into its tent. But when day comes, the sun comes out like a bridegroom with the great joy of the opening of the daytime and comes out in the wonder of a bright new day. Then he says, he describes it like a hero. That's what the strong man is, the strong man, the hero or the mighty warrior. He runs its course with joy. The idea here is the hero is is perhaps going about his daily routine 
running down the course to keep himself in this manly shape, and he goes out like that warrior with joy. The rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its glow or from its heat. As it gives its glow, the sun rejoices. All of these things, as you know, if you look out at creation itself, you cannot help but be in awe of how insignificant you feel because of the universal wonders of creation. The constancy of this knowledge reminds me of the commercial many years back where the little guy with the mustache says, well, it's time to make the donuts. And he gets up in the morning, you know, perhaps you under, remember the Dunkin' Donuts commercial every day. It shows in different circumstances the guy having to get up every single day and make the donuts. And the idea was the donuts were always excellent. They were always done the same way to the same quality and to the same experience of those who had come in the store. This is what the author is saying. The sun comes out every day, day to day, the stars at night proclaim their, their glory of God and the sun and uh, the, the earth itself proclaims the glory of God constantly, the same quality, the same experience every day to testify to the creator who made them. The sun has, after all, risen every day of every person in this room's life. There wasn't a single day that the sun did not go about its course, or as we would say today, that the earth did not rotate and revolve the way that God has set it into motion. As long as the earth exists, there shall be day and night, and there shall be seasons in their time. But all of this, in all its glory, creation does not save the sinner. Paul says on the one hand in Romans 2, because of creation, no one in creation has any excuse but to know that there really is a God. Charles Spurgeon on this passage wrote these words, he who looks up to the firmament and then writes himself down an atheist brands himself at the same moment as an idiot or a liar. The problem is this. The scriptures reveal to us something that creation doesn't. In general revelation, we see that there is a creator, there is a God. If we're honest, even as great scientists, and we sit down and we look at how it all works together, we understand that someone created these things. But in order to be saved from our sins, we need what is next. Notice what changes here. Perhaps you didn't notice it. In the first six verses, David talks about the glory of God, the word El in Hebrew. In verse 7, it changes from describing the glory of God to now the law of the Lord. That word, L-O-R-D, which is the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah, and he uses it seven times in the rest of the chapter. In other words... Creation will tell us there is a God, but God's word tells us even the name of God. And here he is. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
The testimony of the Lord is true. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. Here is what he says about the Lord. He is the Lord of the life-giving word. He describes it with six different synonyms that all describe kind of the same thing and we find out as we read through this he's not just talking about the law of Moses he's talking about all of God's word here and in in essence David doesn't even understand it at this point he's also talking about this psalm and all the word that will be written through the pages of the New Testament as well He says the Lord's Torah or law, that's the first synonym that's used here, is perfect. The idea of perfect is being blameless. It's without error. And what does this word do? It revives or restores the soul. Now you can't go out in creation and have your soul restored in the same sense. Now, sometimes we go out in creation and we think, oh, this is so refreshing. And sometimes when we go out to the ocean here at Myrtle Beach, sometimes we can go out there and relax and and feel like we're refreshed, but the idea here is it's restoring or bringing back someone to the Lord. That's what the law can do. Then the second thing is the testimony or the reminder of God. God reminds us in his word of himself, and he says this is reliable or sure. It comes from the family of words regarding truth and reliability and faithfulness. And what can this do for somebody? How can this change somebody that creation doesn't? It can make even the naive or the young person wise. In the old language, it was the simpleton, the guy who who didn't have the big intelligence quotient or the factor that people look at for someone that, that has the great wisdom of the earth. What can make somebody wise? It's God's testimony, God's reminders. I have to say, some of the smartest and wisest people I knew never got an education never had an important job, never had respect in the community, but they knew their Bible. And they were so wise. The third synonym is this, directions or precepts here. And it says here they are right or straight. In other words, they're not going to take you down a crooked path. And because of this, because we know they're right and they're straight, And because we know God's word is reliable and perfect, our heart rejoices, doesn't it? Think of this. If you know a word that will not take you the wrong way, and you don't have to worry about going down the wrong direction, isn't that a joy? I think so. Particularly for somebody who's taken many wrong turns in my car or wrong turns in life. The fourth word is commandment. We know what that means. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And because it's pure, it brightens the eyes. In other words, it's so pure that we can hardly look at it because it it enlightens us and brightens us. God's commandment is pure. And then it talks about the fear of the Lord. That's kind of an interesting word to describe the word of God. Perhaps this is more the reaction to it. 
But he says the fear of the Lord is clean. That sounds odd, doesn't it? To say that the fear of the Lord is clean. Well, it's because if we don't fear the Lord, we remain dirty in our sins. The fear of the Lord is clean, and what does it do? It causes God's word to stand forever. The word here is standing or enduring forever. It's an eternal word. It's a straight word. It's a pure word. It's perfect, and it is sure and reliable. And finally, the Lord's judgments or rules are true. How important that is, isn't it? That the Lord's judgments are true. The word judgment here is the word that we use for trying a case, the judgments or decisions that are made from a legal case. And here it says they are true. Do you realize how hard it is to get truth out of a trial? You know, when you come, you have the prosecutor who's trying to present the case of what had happened, and you have the defense attorney who's trying to... to uh, describe how their client is innocent, and we perhaps don't ever get all of the details that can fit together because we weren't eyewitnesses to the event. Even eyewitnesses may not get all the details of that event straight, and yet the judge is supposed to make a judgment in the case or the jury. God knows every angle, doesn't he? God knows the heart of the victim and the heart of the defendant. God knows every detail that's there, and his judgments are true. In fact, they are altogether righteous. Don't we long for righteous judges? And then what does it say about the law of the Lord? Much to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That God's word is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. That's pretty sweet. You take a bite of honey, it's supposed to make your eyes bright, as scripture says. And of course, our honey is filled with sugar, especially after it's processed and all this other stuff. And, and boy, it can make things sweet. God's word's sweeter than honey. You know, the price of gold has gone up, I think, recently. Continues to go up. I hear all these commercials. At least the commercials tell me that. I'm not a gold investor. I don't really know. But, you know, they tell us that gold is very valuable. If I had a podium made of gold, I don't think we would keep it in the church. But God's word is more desirable than gold. It's better and then what happens? Why is this word there? There are two great blessings and rewards here. First of all, God's servant is given a warning. By them your servant is warned. Why is it that it's so wonderful that God's word is perfect and reliable and straight and all those other descriptions here? It's because of this. They provide a warning for the people. In fact, that's the whole purpose of God sending prophets. The purpose of prophets was not to predict the future. The purpose of prophets was to warn the people to turn from their sins because of what might be coming. And so here it is, this great warning. If we're warned about these things, we can be prepared for what is coming because what happens when we keep the word of God? There is great reward. 
It brings reward for following the word, following the law and the precepts and those things, and it gives warning if you don't. This is the Lord of life, not just the Lord of creation and glory. Now, how many of you like to eat chicken? You wonder what in the world, what does chicken have to do with this? You know, it's really good to eat chicken, but how many of you know how to cook chicken? You know, there's a little something out there that's called salmonella. And if you don't know how to cook that chicken, then it doesn't matter how good that chicken chicken looks. If you didn't do it the proper way, there is danger in eating that chicken. You know, creation is a wonderful thing. It has all kinds of wonderful things to experience, and it offers all kinds of delights. But if you don't have the word of God that tells us how to handle the glory of God in all creation, it's not life-saving. You see, it's not just by pictures, but it's by the word of instruction That even in cooking chicken, we get safety, delight, and delectability. But in the word of God, we have the instruction, the special revelation that we don't learn about in creation that gives us this special creation, gives us not only the word that reveals and exposes to us our sin, but it gives us the promises and gospel of God that for those who believe in him will have eternal life. You see, David, as he looks at the glory of creation in natural or general revelation, and as he looks at the wonder and awe of the perfect word of God, and the wonder of the reward and the warning it brings, he responds in these ways. By the end of this, notice the last two words of the psalm. He says, my redeemer. But what does he do when he first responds to these things in verse 12? He says, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, it's important to know who the his is here. The his is not God. The his is God's servant. So David is talking about himself. This is how he often will refer to himself, as do many authors in the Bible, refer to themselves as God's slaves or God's servants. And so here he's speaking of himself. He says, who can discern? In essence, he's saying, my heirs declare me innocent from hidden faults. You see, what does Revelation prompt us to do? The special revelation of God's word, especially his law, which is a school teacher until the gospel comes, prompts us to confess our sin. And it's interesting how David starts. David doesn't start with the egregious sins he's committed or will commit in some of the very public scandals of his life. He speaks, first of all, about those unintentional sins. The sins he didn't even know he committed. The things that perhaps he didn't do that were supposed to be done according to God's word. Or the things that he didn't even know how he broke God's word. He starts there with those tiny little things. We might say they're like white lies. And he says, who can discern his errors? And of course, the idea here is, I don't even know how I've sinned. 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Did you know that in the book of Leviticus, as well as Numbers, there are, there are ways in which the Israelites could come and offer a sacrifice for their unintentional sins? And this is what David's referring to. As I look at the law and its perfect quality, I look at your word and all your requirements, and I look at how it's right and true and clean and pure and all those other words that I've just described, I cannot help but confess how sinful I am. In fact, the scriptures in those places about unintentional sins say this. On the one hand, if you commit unintentional sins, there is a way to offer a sacrifice. But if you commit presumptuous sins, that is, sins by a high hand, as the book of Numbers chapter 15 says, if you commit sins by a high hand, you are to be cut off from the people of God. So David begins with those unintentional sins, and then he says, please, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, those of a high hand. Let them not have dominion over me. In other words, revelation prompts a desire for sanctification, for cleansing from sin, and particularly for protection from the temptation to rebel against God with arrogance and pride. You know those things that you and I struggle with, arrogance and pride. And so we seek protection from temptation and also from the bondage of sin that that does. It says, let them not have dominion over me. In other words, let not my rebellion and my sin be the ruling master of my life. Did you know that if you don't seek to glorify God in your life, something else is ruling over you? And that is your arrogance, your pride, your rebellion against God, however it is described, those things are ruling over you. Let them not do that, Lord. How important for David with all his power, all his might, all his wealth, all his influence in the kingdom to say, I don't want my pride and my arrogance and my temptation to rule over me. Lord, I want to be your servant. Then he says... I shall be blameless. You see, he desires for a declaration here. He says, I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He says, then I will be, in essence, acquitted. He's desiring the declaration of an acquittal. This is, by New Testament definition, the word justification. He wants to be justified from his sin. That is, not justified in that he was sinning and that he had a good reason to sin. No, not that kind of justification. But justification, as in the definition, just as if he had never sinned, blameless, without error. Here he is, he says, then, if you keep your servant back from these high-handed sins, and you declare me innocent from even my hidden faults, then I will be blameless. Then I will be acquitted. Then, the great words of verse 14. Even the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my desire is that I be declared acceptable to you. Again, sanctification. You see, the wonder of creation speaks of the glory of God with the fanfare of Joseph Haydn and the instruments and the voices to the awe of Mount Mauna Loa going off right now in Hawaii. 
to the constancy of the sunrise and the beauty of the sunset. It testifies to the glory of the creator, but the word of God. The word of God is so much more wonderful, so much more desirable, so much more pleasant to the ears of those who have believed in the Savior because this word which spoke creation into existence is all the more wonderful in its perfection, reliability, straightness, purity, cleanness, and truth and veracity. That it is the word of the Lord that the Holy Spirit uses to convict the sinner like David. And it's that word. It's not creation. It's not a mountaintop experience. It's not something that we've done or have by our effort attained. It is merely by the working of the Holy Spirit using God's word in your heart to convict you that you are a sinner and rebel against God. Even the least things that you have done disqualifying you to the entrance of heaven. It is this word that God has used to convict you. And then as he says in verse 7, to restore your soul. And then as he says in response to all this, to be able to declare God my redeemer. He has purchased your salvation. All of that truth that's that's true in regards to your salvation is not in creation. It's not in other self-help books. It's not in your experience. It's in the word of God. People will say, well, how come you're so fanatic about the word of God? Because it contains the words which are able to save. It contains the words which are able to rebuke us and correct us and to train us in righteousness for the sake of God and for the sake of our ministry before him. It allows us to see God in his fullness. The word of God. The three great declarations in this psalm. First of all, God is the God of glory. Everyone on earth should know this innately by the fact that creation exists and is so vast and wonderful. The second great declaration, there is a Lord of life who has revealed himself to his people in his word. And by that life, he changes them and restores them. And then the great declaration of the believer, I hope you with David can say these words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my boulder, doesn't that sound like Psalm 18, and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great declarations. We thank you that you have not only put us in this world that you have created, but you've given us your word that reveals how these rebels, rebelling against you, the creator, can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice in these words. Lord, clean, clean us. Cleanse us from sin, remind us of your glory, and show us, Lord, once again the power of your word. We pray.